My name is Jim West, and I want to uh, just greet whoever is with us today online, our online community is with us live right now, as well as our 1030 service at our South Kansas City location. Good morning to everybody there. Good morning to everybody here. And we are going to jump back into the book of Ephesians. We're walking through the book of Ephesians, Paul's great, very deep letter of encouragement to the churches, not just in Ephesus, but in the surrounding region. And we're in chapter one. Now, you're probably thinking, we're still in chapter one? Yes, yes, because this is so good. It's so meaty. It's very hard for us to go very quickly. So get used to it. I move slowly. But it's because I want us to actually like drill down into some of the most powerful things that have ever been written in the New Testament that help us to know Christ and to know who we are. So in the first part of chapter one, there's, I mean, Paul's writing to the church, but he's really just praising God. And, and, and so we looked at this benediction of praise that went from verse three to verse 14, one long sentence, 202 words, 37 prepositional phrases that just gushing forth uh, praise for God for what he has done. And Paul just listed so many things that God has done from blessing us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places to choosing us before the foundation of the world, predestined that we were predestined for adoption as sons and daughters, that all things will come together under the headship of Christ, right? That when, when we believe the, the message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance that awaits us. I mean, so many things to just say, thank God, praise God. And that is, that is the foundation of hope that then leads uh, to what comes next, right? So as we turn into the next portion of really the rest of chapter one, he's continuing in a prayer. It's no longer the benediction of praise, but he has a prayer of thanksgiving for the church and then immediately enters into petitions for the church. So that's where we are. We're transitioning to the second part of chapter one. Please stand. We'll read the first bit of it. We won't be able to get to all of it today, but we'll read verses 1, 15 through 19. Please read along with me. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Thank you. Please be seated. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Lord, as we gather here today uh, at this service and our South Kansas location, as people join us around the world on the our online uh, platforms, we just pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see you, that we would know you, that we would understand the hope of our calling, that we would that we would understand that we have heard from God today, that it would inform every question, every pain, every challenge that we're facing, and it would lead us to be your people, to be the light of Christ in this hurting culture. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've organized my uh, message today under three subheadings, very predictable, uh, but very interesting. So number one, a pastor's delight. Number two, the Spirit's work. And finally, through the hope and the call. 
So first, the pastor's delight. You know, I don't know how often you think of the Apostle Paul as a pastor. He, you know, we think of him as the great missionary who traveled and planted churches all over Asia Minor. But really, in his heart, he's a pastor. And he, he planted the church in Ephesus and was there for the better part of two years, some think even up to almost three years. Uh, he had a hand in planting multiple churches, sending his team to the surrounding region. But when he writes this letter, he has been imprisoned. Well, it's, it's a form of house arrest, but he still has chains. He is bound in a land far away, in, 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 actually in Rome itself. And it's been a long time since he's seen his people. And if you know anything about a pastor, that's hard on our heart. It's okay to be gone for a little while, like three months on sabbatical. <laughs> but then we want to be back. We miss our people. We long for them. We have deep relationships. And so you can imagine with no email and no phone, very shoddy little postal system there in the Roman Empire, he was desperate to know how is the church. And so he has received some news, and we think maybe from this disciple named Tychicus, uh, there's a little clue here at the end of chapter 6, 21 and 22, Paul says, so that you may also know how I am doing and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So just kind of running the tape backwards, it, it, it is logical to think that Tychicus was maybe the one who made this journey all the way from Ephesus in that region, all the way to Rome to visit Paul and shared with him how things are going. But whether it was Tychicus or, or by some other means, Paul has heard, he's overjoyed with the news that he's received. And that's where our passage begins today, verses 15 to 16. He writes, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. So he may be in chains, but Paul is a happy pastor. This news really has encouraged his heart. And he begins by saying, for this reason, and he's looking backwards to the benediction of praise, just saying, you know, for this reason, because of God's election and the work of the Holy Spirit and everything that we've just praised God for, and given what I've heard about you, which is predictable, right? If God is doing these things and has done these things within the church, there are two telltale signs, two telltale signs that he identifies anyways of a church that is on fire, a church that's growing, a church that has the Holy Spirit at work in them, and it's faith and love. Faith and love. First, Paul celebrates the believing communities known for their faith in Jesus as Lord. He says, oh, I'm so encouraged. I've heard of your faith. Now, when we talk about faith, this is the, this is the the sign of the of the church. The church is identified by her faith in Jesus as Lord. You know, I hear all the time of organizations that call themselves churches, like there's like the Church of Satan, right? <laughs> and there's even other organizations that call themselves churches, like the Universalist Church. And you know, no offense, but I don't understand that word. That term doesn't make any sense because a church, by definition, are those who align themselves in their identity in Jesus. That, that is what is the identifying marker of a local church, is that they are in Christ, and Christ alone. And it's so, so important. Now, in the first century, you need to know, uh, this is more than just doctrinal identification or understanding or agreement. This is a group of people who had faith in Jesus for everything. Because in the ancient world, if you were a Christian, whether you were a Jewish convert or a Gentile convert, it was very likely you'd be excommunicated from your family, because remember, this was, this was new. 
and people thought you were crazy. Uh, you would be excommunicated from, from your family, from the synagogue if you were a Jew, oftentimes just expelled from the marketplace. Your, your, your means of income and providing for your family, it was very, very costly to be a believer in the first century. And so Paul is so encouraged that he's hearing about their faith in Christ, not just for salvation, but for everything. And this is a telltale sign of a church that's being empowered by the Holy Spirit. The second defining quality of the body of Christ is a love that is shared amongst all the saints. And the word that Paul uses here is this great, deep, powerful Greek word, agape. There's different words for love in the Greek. This one is the deepest. It is an unconditional love. It is the love that loves without consideration for what one is receiving in the relationship. And he says, you are showing this kind of love for all the believers. This is really a telltale sign of the church filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, I don't know how many of you know this, and you might be disappointed to know, I'm just going to share a bit of news with you, that we're a very divided people. <laughs> Does anybody know that? Right? And we're good at it, and I think we kind of like it, because we can find any reason to be divided. I mean, just put any 10 people in a room and give them a little bit of time, and they'll be divided. And there'd be those people are, that are in and people are out. The, these people are right, these people are wrong. And we just do this around gender, race, nationalities, denominations, divisions within our families. How many of you know that there's divisions within yourself? Right? There's like the person you want to be and then there's the person you are. Right? There's, there's this sense of I know what the right thing is to do, but I just don't do it. Right? We have even division within ourselves. Such is why the most compelling evidence of the Spirit of Christ in a community is the way that that community loves one another in a way that goes beyond those divisions. It, it, it transcends to a kind of deep, powerful, agape love for, for everybody, for all of the saints. Now, this is exactly the kind of love that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 13. We hear this read in weddings, but it was really just written for the church. This is the agape love of Christ in community that we have we love with a love that is patient and kind, that does not envy, that is not boast, that is not rude or arrogant or resentful, right? I mean, it is a love that always hopes, always believes, uh, always endures, a love that never ends, that keeps no record of wrongs. I mean, this is the kind of love that Paul celebrates when he sees it lived out amongst all the saints in the church. It's a telltale sign that the Holy Spirit is doing something that we could never do in the flesh. This is why he's so excited. He says, I thank God for you because I've heard of your faith and your love. Now, at the risk of sounding inappropriately gushy, I can relate with the Apostle Paul. As your pastor, nothing pleases me more than to hear of your faith in Christ. And I hear about this all the time. You know, in a church of our size, every single week, somebody is diagnosed with cancer. Somebody is going through those kind of horrible treatments and enduring great sickness and difficult. Every week, somebody is losing a loved one, somebody that they care deeply about. Every week, people are experiencing being laid off from their jobs and uh, the uncertainty of unemployment. Marriages are strained. So many of you are dealing with such difficult situations. This is very common in a group of people, right? But what's so amazing, and I hear this all the time, is your great faith in Christ in the midst of these trials. I mean, I'll just give you one example. We, we have a wonderful lady at our South Kansas City campus named Tandron Jones. Uh, she is a young mom with five children, 
And all the time that she's been here at Colonial, she came shortly after I arrived. She has just been a woman of tremendous faith, a wonderful leader of her family. And now her body is filled with cancer. And it has been for some time. And the doctors uh, are giving her no, no hope of survival. She uh, was not even supposed to leave the hospital. She was there for several weeks following a surgery that they realized they could do nothing. And, but she was at church last Sunday. <laughs> As she prayed over us at the the great gathering under the stars. She has continued to show a faith in Christ that is the most compelling thing. In fact, I sat in the hospital several weeks ago and just watched two nurses simply come undone in her presence because her faith in Christ was so compelling to them. This is the story that we see time and time again lived out within the church when the Holy Spirit's at work. We just see this tremendous faith not about Christ, but in Christ in every respect. And, I, and it's costly, even now. I mean, I've heard your stories of people, you know, in your family who mock you because of your faith. You know, people that we're dating who don't understand the change that's happening in us because we weren't Christians when we started dating, but now we are. And they're like, who are you, right? Even in our schools, some students can be kind of nasty to those who are identified with Christ, and that's just... That world that we live in, faith is costly. Identification with Jesus is costly. But it's so compelling when I hear about your faith. It also moves my heart so much to hear the stories of the way that you love one another with a Jesus kind of love for all of the saints. Now, it's very easy to love the people that are in your small group. I'm not even counting that, <laughs> okay? Although some of the people in your small group are hard to love. All right. <clears throat> Living life in community can be challenging. It's easy to love people who love you. It's easy to love people who are like you. But what I have seen and and observed personally over the last 14 years is how you love people that you don't even know. Believers from other parts of the world, right, that you're investing in. Uh, You know, children that you'll never meet that you're investing in, in your prayers, in your service, in your giving, in our orphan projects around the world. The way that that you gave a half million dollars just to simply bless single moms in our community, most of whom will never step foot in our church. These are the things that only God can do. Only God can move our hearts to love all the saints with this kind of a love, a selfless, generous kind of love. We don't even take credit for it. It's just something that God does within his church. But it causes a pastor to be very grateful and very pleased. Now, the Apostle Paul, like all good pastors, is easily pleased, never satisfied, (laughs) right? Because there's more. Any pastor always wants more for his people. And we're going to see that where where Paul gives thanks to God. He's so excited about the report, and he immediately moves into petition. And you're going to hear the pastor's heart for his church in the prayer that he prays. So that leads to my second subheading, the Spirit's work. In verses 17 and 18, Paul reveals his heart for the church as he prays, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Oh, there's so much here, church. I know this just sounds like one sentence in the Bible, but there's so much that he just said. I just want to point out a few things. First of all, remember that Paul was a Pharisaic Jew prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus. In every letter, in every instance where he would write about God or be speaking about God, he would always been trained to identify God as God, the, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here, listen to how he identifies God. He says, 
the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is gargantuous because Paul is acknowledging that the hope of the world is not in the law and the prophets entrusted to the descendants of Abraham, but the one who came and fulfilled the law and prophets of the descendant of Abraham, who is now Christ our Lord, who by his sacrificial death on a cross that we deserved in the triumph of his resurrection has instituted a new covenant, the covenant of grace. (laughs) That's our God now. He has been revealed fully through his son, and he is a God who loves us so much that he took on our penalty that we might be redeemed. And now, Paul prays to the Father of glory, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he would give the church, quote, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Now, we talked about last week, Paul acknowledged in his benediction praise right at the end that, that you too, he said to the, both the Galatians as well as to the Jewish converts, that when you believe the hope of the gospel, the good news of your salvation, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So as he prays here in this petition, he's not praying for a different spirit. He's not just praying for your spirit, but he's now praying for the spirit to do what the spirit does. And that is for the spirit to provide wisdom and revelation. Now, we should not think that this wisdom and revelation is some kind of a secret knowledge. That would be the Gnostics. The wisdom and revelation will come through what God has already spoken through the scriptures, and that's primarily where all of our wisdom and revelation comes from. Christ has been revealed in the four gospels, and this was the goal, right, for the knowledge of him, that we would, our eyes of our hearts would be opened that the Spirit would come bringing wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of Him. You know, you can open the four Gospels, and I highly recommend that you do, and we can learn about Jesus. But I don't really think that is capturing the depth of Paul's prayer. He doesn't just want us to know about Him. He wants us to know Him. Now, how many of you know that there's a difference between knowing about somebody and knowing somebody, right? I'll show you. Here's my example that's my beautiful wife, Christy, and I look like a dork. But, uh, but a lot of you know my wife, Christy, right? I mean, in other words, you know about her. You maybe know a little bit about what she does. You know, she directs the NKS choir, and she's a nice person. You know, some of you know her pretty well. <clears throat> but nobody knows that lady like I do, right? Not her parents, not her sister. I'm her husband for 28 years. I know her like nobody else does. In fact, you know, the biblical concept of knowing between man and woman and husband and wife leads to children, right? I mean, there's this deep intimacy of the knowing between a husband and wife. But here's what anybody who's been married a long time can tell you, is that the deepest level of intimacy in marriage far surpasses anything that happens in the flesh. The deepest intimacy that creates oneness in marriage is knowing and being known. It is a mutual love characterized by mutual submission, mutual surrender, mutual vulnerability, and mutual trust. And where that happens, where there, there's this deep knowing and mutual possession, there's oneness. You know, Jesus is described as the bridegroom, and his church is the bride. And the reason that imagery is there is because a marriage between a husband and wife is, is about as close as we can come. It's, it's a poor example, but it's probably the closest example that we come to describing the intimacy that Christ desires with his church. Have you ever thought about that? He 
he didn't die just to transact. Right? He, did, he didn't come and suffer the cross simply to do a legal transaction that would pay your debt and give you a get-out-of-jail-free ticket. He actually came. He took on flesh. He walked amongst us. He took on our existence, learned our language, and, and engaged with us at this deep level, and then died and rose again so that he would know you and that you would know him. So let me just ask you a question. Do you know Christ? Do you know Jesus? I'm not asking if you know about him. I'm asking if you know him. Does he know you? And the reason I ask that question, because one of the most concerning things Jesus ever said is recorded in Matthew 7, 21 following. <laughs> he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Uh, Dr. Kent Hughes, New Testament scholar, writes, Knowing Christ is one of the New Testament's way of describing saving faith. Jesus himself said in his high priestly prayer, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Those who know Christ have eternal life. Those who do not know him are without it. Do you see that? Do you, do you, do you feel that the, the intent of Christ when he came for us was that we would have a relationship, that we would know him? So let me ask you again. Do you know Jesus? Does he know you? Now here's the problem. And we'll see this just very shortly as we get into early part of, of Ephesians 2. Is that in our natural state, just as sinful human beings, we are spiritually dead people, right? So we are incapable of a relationship with the living God. We're incapable of a relationship with Jesus. In fact, we're actually incapable of even caring about a relationship with Christ. That is the natural condition. And so what needs to happen, right, is that the Holy Spirit will come and quicken us and will awaken that part of us, that spiritual part of us that can learn, that can care about any spiritual thing. And this is exactly what Paul is praying for in, in two senses. So in John 16, we read about the work of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know if you know this, but I preached in John for a while, right? So you can go back and you can unpack those messages. But in John 16... The work of the Holy Spirit is spelled out in two ways. First, what the Holy Spirit does for the world, and then what the Holy Spirit does for those who believe. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. All right, so if you ever actually see your sin, if you actually ever care about the fact that you're going to be held to the standard of God and his righteousness and you're going to be found lacking. If you cared all about the judgment that awaits all people, because we all know that we walk around as condemned people, that is the Holy Spirit doing that convicting work. Even before you're like, I'm interested, the only reason you'd be interested is because the Holy Spirit convicts the world. That's what the Holy Spirit does. But then Jesus said, and here's what he will do for the church, that he would guide believers into all the truth that he would glorify Christ, that the Holy Spirit would take what belongs to Jesus and make it ours. He would declare it to the church. <clears throat> I believe this is what Paul is praying for right now. 
He's praying, he, he's talking to the church. He knows that these people have believed the gospel of their salvation, that the Holy Spirit has come and sealed them as a guarantee of their inheritance. But now he's praying for them to, to, to be so impacted by the work of the Holy Spirit that everything that belonged to Christ would now become theirs, that they would come to know him personally. And this is the wisdom and revelation to the knowledge of him. I think that he's writing about he says it this way, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. <laughs> this is a very unique expression. We don't find this eyes of the heart anywhere, but we do find a lot of language about the heart. New Testament scholar Clint Arnold writes, in the Old Testament Judaism, heart was used metaphorically as the place of a person's intellectual and spiritual life. Okay, that's your heart. Your heart is the place of a person's intellectual and spiritual life. And Paul is here praying that God will provide profound insight into his own person and will for these believers. These are people who were formerly darkened in their understanding and separated from the life that comes from God. So if Christ is in you, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. To engage in that place of your intellect, of your deepest held spiritual beliefs and understanding, and empower you to come to know the very person of God himself as revealed in Jesus Christ. Now, is that a completely passive experience? Because I go to church, because I believe in the gospel, this is just going to happen. I'm just going to sit around and kind of wait for it to happen. No, this is the language of relationship, right? So we have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. If we want to know Christ more, the Holy Spirit's going to accomplish it, but we have to cooperate. I mean, if somebody says, hey, I'd really like to get to know you, like, oh, I'd really like to get to know you too. When, when, like, when can we get together? We can't. Well, you know, so, so this is the work of the Holy Spirit, but we have to cooperate with that work. So what does that mean? So at the minimum, it means that we pray, right? That we, we, we come to that place of our heart, which is both intellectual and spiritual, openness to receive what the Holy Spirit wants to reveal in terms of wisdom and revelation. And it's going to happen as we read the Scripture. But it's, it's going to happen as we gather in Christian community where our hearts are open in a place of corporate worship. It's going to happen in our Bible studies, in our small groups, in our believing families, in our friend groups. It's going to happen as we follow Jesus in obedience. An obedient life is one that comes to know Christ intimately and personally because it's costly to be obedient. But we have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Uh, he does all the work, but it is incumbent upon us so my question is, do you even want to know Jesus more? Do you want the Holy Spirit to do this work in you, to where you, you know him and are known by him in a deeply personal and intimate way, a way that comes close to even eclipsing the intimacy between a husband and wife? This was actually the deepest desire of Paul's heart. And we see it as he writes to the church in Philippians, uh, Philippi, in, in Philippians 3, 7, and 10. But whatever gain I had, he's writing, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Listen, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That is my prayer. 
I hope that is your prayer. And this is what Paul's now praying for, for the church. That the Spirit would come with wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. All right, let me go to my third subheading now, the hope and the call. There's a so that. If you notice on our mission statement, to be the light of Christ, so that, right? The so that is the vision of what will come if the Holy Spirit moves and he answers Paul's prayer. There's going to be a so that, and there are three things. So that the, well, here's what he writes. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Now, in my foolishness, I thought I could cover all three of those things, but there's no way, all right? So I'm just going to cover one. We'll come back and cover the next two next week. So Paul's first so that, as the Holy Spirit answers, you know, and, and the Father sent the Holy Spirit to do this work, to enlighten your hearts with wisdom and revelation, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So this language of hope and calling is all throughout the New Testament. It is probably most powerfully summed up in, in Romans 8, 28 through 30, which I'm going to quote to you in a minute. It may do more damage than good. But basically it's this. The foundation of your hope for your calling is your election. These things are inseparable. Everything that he just said in the benediction of praise is the foundation of your hope that gives birth to your calling. So let me just read Romans 8, 28 through 30. This was the first passage I ever attempted to write an exegesis paper on as a freshman at Wake Forest. I was weighing over my head, don't read the paper. Uh, there's so much here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, there's a ton there, but do you see the relationship between God's election and the calling? Right? I mean, the hope of our calling, the foundation for hope, boils down to this simple truth. God chose us in Christ. God chose you before you could ever choose him. He thought about you before the foundation of the world. He predestined you for adoption as sons and daughters. This is your hope. It is the foundation of your hope. Nothing should be able to shake that. And that points to your calling. Now, what is the calling? The New Testament scholar John Stott plums the depth of the calling. <laughs> So I could not ever write this as succinctly and as well as he did. He quotes many scriptures. Let me just read it to you. He writes, What the call is, the rest of the New Testament tells us. It is a rich and varied expectation. For God has called us to belong to Jesus Christ and into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. He has called us to be saints, called us with a holy calling, since he who has called us is holy himself and says to us, You shall be holy. It means set apart, for I am holy. One of the characteristics of the holy or special people of God is liberation from the judgment of God's law. So we are not to lapse into slavery again, for we were called to freedom. Another characteristic is harmonious fellowship across the barriers of race and class. For we were called in the one body to enjoy the peace of Christ and must live a life that is worthy of the calling to which he's been called. These are all scriptures for bearing one another in love. 
At the same time, he goes on, we are bound to experience opposition from the unbelieving world. Yet we must not retaliate. Quote, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then beyond suffering lies the glory, for God has called us into his own kingdom and glory, into his eternal glory in Christ. All of this, now here's the payout. All of this was in God's mind when he called us. He called us to Christ and holiness, to freedom and peace, to suffering and glory. More simply, it was a call to an altogether new life in which we know, love, obey, and serve Christ. Enjoy fellowship with him and with each other and look beyond our present suffering to the glory which will one day be revealed. Isn't that a beautiful quote? I mean, that is such a beautiful summary of this idea of the calling. So the Holy Spirit comes, opens the eyes of our heart that we would see and know and have conviction regarding the hope of our calling, the hope which is the foundation for the new life of knowing Christ, serving Christ, even as we suffer for the glory that awaits us. Amen? It's just a beautiful, beautiful picture. Now, every once in a while, people come to me and say, I feel like maybe I'm being called to ministry. How many of you know that pastors are some of the people who like to talk about their call? And as lay people, a lot of times you're like, what do you mean by that? And, and does that mean that just like professional clergy people have calls and the rest of us don't have calls? We just have jobs, right? Well, no, listen. The hope of our calling is consistent amongst at all with believers, right? That is God's election of you. God chose you before the foundation of the world. That's the hope of your calling. Then the general calling is exactly what John Stott just said. Everything he just said, all the scriptures point to the new life that Christ purchased for us on the cross through God's election. And so everything he just said, knowing Christ, walking with Christ, suffering with Christ, and, and the hope of glory that awaits us, that is all completely consistent for everybody all over the world who call themselves followers of Jesus. The hope of your calling and this calling as a follower of Jesus. That is consistent everywhere. Now, the manifestation of that in real time, giving your gifts and circumstances and God's providence, would be a specific calling. So my specific calling right now is to serve as lead pastor at Colonial Presbyterian Church. You have your own specific calling. The, all your, the, the very unique way that God is going to leverage your life, your gifts, your position, your influence, your resources to bring glory to him to advance his kingdom. You 100% have a specific calling. Many of you are like, I have no idea what that is. I bet you do. If you really think about it, it's all just going to come from the hope of your calling, this general calling of all believers to know Jesus more, but then the outworking of that will happen within the context where God has planted you. Does that make sense? It's so, so important for you to understand. You were chosen. You were saved to have a completely new life of intimacy with Christ and fellowship with the believers. And you have exactly the gifts. You are in exactly the place. You're exactly who you are for such a time as this. That is unique, your unique calling. All right? Now, there's so much more. There's not just this 
this hope of our calling. There's the future hope of one day possessing our full inheritance. There's a great encouragement in the power of God that has worked in those who believe. All of that and more next Sunday. But I just want to close right now, coming back to the question I asked you earlier. Do you know Jesus? Does he know you? Based upon that scripture, I think every one of us should say, I sure hope he knows me. I don't want to be in that scripture, right? I mean, I know saints who have served the Lord for decades whose knees tremble when they read that passage in Matthew because I think all of us feel like we're capable of being self-deceived. So how do we know that we know Jesus and that he knows us? Well, you're going to look for these two tell, 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 tell markers of the church, right? You trust him. You have faith in him. And he has given you the power to love. And that you begin to love more and more with this unconditional love. Those are telltale signs of one who knows and is known by Christ. The question is, how do we know him better? Or if perhaps we're those here today and we don't really know Christ, but maybe through the work of the Holy Spirit, maybe for the first time in our life, we actually care. That's the Holy Spirit bringing conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What do we do? Well, if you go back and you read the four Gospels, Jesus really just spoke two words consistently to everybody. He just said, what? Follow me. Just makes sense, right? I mean, if you would really like to get to know somebody, you need to spend some time with them. You, you, you hang out with them. You go where they go. You follow them. You're part of their life. And this is what Jesus has invited you to do. Before you try to make a claim of allegiance, before you try to pretend that, you, you know, you actually love him when you don't, the best thing that you could possibly do is to just follow him. And if you will just take some time and spend some time in the four Gospels every day and ask God to reveal Jesus to you, not just as a historical figure, not just as doctrine that you would agree with, but as a living God, because he's not dead. He's very much alive. I don't know if you've heard, but the tomb is empty. Amen? He rose again. And he will come to you, and you will come to know him. But the best way to know Jesus and to be known by him is to follow him. It is to listen to what he said and do what he said. And as you let your life be conformed to his likeness, not only will you know him and be known by him, but you will be known for him. Amen? People will see Christ in you. And that brings glory to God and hope to the world. This is where we have faith and love because Christ is in us. And so I challenge you, church, to, to desire the deeper things of God, to ask for this, this knowledge and this wisdom and revelation of Christ himself and a deeper relationship with Jesus that, that you would finally, you know, grow in your faith to where you just cast these other things aside and say, just to know him more. That is the deepest desire of my heart. And if you are somebody who has just never known Christ at all, then I hope that you'll pray with me here at the end of the message. Because if you even care to know him, I can tell you right now that God has called you and chose you before the foundation of the earth. And he is sending his Holy Spirit to awaken your dead heart, your dead spiritual heart, so that you could finally come to know him and be reconciled through the blood of Christ. I mean, this is what he does. He does it all the time, all over the world. So for you, the church, let me first pray the prayer that one pastor prayed over his congregation many, many years ago. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you 
for these people, for your church, for their faith, and for their love for all the saints. But Lord, I pray for more. Colonial, I pray for you that, that the Father of glory, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to his great mind. And Lord, we as a church pray for those who might be with us today, watching online, who don't know you. They're very honest about that. But for, for reasons that you know of, today they care. Today there is a, an aching in their heart as it begins to come to life, the center of their intellectual and spiritual identity, understanding the need for redemption that you would show them Christ on the cross and they would see one who loved them so much that he paid the debt that they owe, that they might be forgiven, reconciled to God, adopted into your family, that they would know that this has always been your will, that you chose them from the beginning, even before the foundations of the earth, that you chose them to be sons and daughters. I pray, Lord, that you would just reveal yourself as the living Lord to that searching soul. Open the eyes of his or her heart that they too might believe and be saved and be drawn into this intimate relationship with our Savior, in whose name we pray, the name of Jesus. Amen.